You are listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. My name is Ed Frank. I am NCBA's Senior Director of Policy Communications. And this week, we are joined by a cavalcade of NCBA stars. If you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you know we usually have one guest, maybe two tops, and we, and we focus in on one issue uh, that is sort of the highlight of that week. Um, we were going around in our Monday morning staff meeting here in D.C., uh, this week and and discovered we just have so much going on and we want everybody to sort of be up to date on on what we're doing and just sort of the breadth of what everybody is working on this week. So the first person to join us is going to be Scott Yeager. Scott is, of course, NCBA's chief environmental counsel. Um, Scott, you just got back from the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, I understand that Mary, Mary Thomas Hart in our office uh, was basically camped out there in the cold at about by about 2.15 a.m. Um, last night so that you guys could get into the hearing. Um, it's a hearing that in, or is, a, is a, a, a hearing that involves a groundwater issue. So why don't you bring folks up to speed on, on what issue was before the Supreme Court today and how you think that hearing went? Thanks, Ed. And, and it's a big question. And that question is, does groundwater uh, constitute uh, something that the government can regulate under the Federal Clean Water Act. Now, historically, that's never been the case. But by virtue of activist litigation that went up through the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, uh, we have a decision there that says that the federal government can regulate anyone who has discharges that gets through the groundwater and eventually goes to a navigable water. So for us, that's really concerning because we represent cattle producers that use the land. And if you're a land-applying manure, if you have cattle uh, that are defecating on land and that those nutrients go through the root zone of your land and go into groundwater, which it's all going to get there eventually, even if you're exactly applying that manure to the grasses and, and growing it as best you can, you're going to have manure that gets through, eventually goes into something below the ground, which could be groundwater. And if that gets to a federal water, now you're liable for federal clean water act liability right we don't want that to happen so we filed a amicus brief in the supreme court case advocating for cattle producers across the country to ensure that whatever decision the supreme court comes to in this case it understands the implications for agriculture and producers out there uh, so that w- that's what our brief was all about and we were able to observe oral arguments today at the supreme court and it's going to be really interesting to see how this turns out because The justices are trying to figure out where they fall on this issue. I think generally it was falling within the ideological lines of the conservative wing and the liberal wing. But Justice Breyer, who is a very liberal justice, actually tried to strike a middle ground and craft a new term that would uh, regulate some but not others. Um, So there's more to come here, but I think we're seeing some movement in the right direction. I think when this all comes down to it, if I were to guess what the outcome of this decision will be, I would say it's going to be a 5-4 decision in favor of limiting uh, jurisdiction and, and you know, basically protecting our producers from being implicated from Clean Water Act liability. Uh, but this is just one example of places where we work on things here on the Hill. We work at regulatory agencies, and we also have a presence in the courts to make sure that we're representing our producers as best we can across the board. Okay. Any guess on when we might have a decision from the court on this? So this is a complicated one, and the justices have until July 1st to file all their decisions. So I think there's going to be a lot of negotiating behind the scenes with between Breyer and Gorsuch and Roberts to figure out where they land as a court. So I don't expect to see a decision until the end of June. All right. That seems to be when all of the decisions come down on the Supreme Court, like the last week or two, right? All right, Scott, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. 
All right. Also joining us today is Ethan Lane. Ethan is the new VP of Government Affairs in our D.C. office. Um, Ethan, uh, also this week, um, there was a bipartisan letter, bipartisan bicameral letter, I guess, um, on Capitol Hill having to do with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, Now, tell us a little bit about what that letter, explain the issue a little bit first, how it affects cattle producers. Um, What does the letter do? And then... uh, what did NCBA and our state affiliates have to do with uh, building support for that letter? So, so first and foremost, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act is is a, a, an act that is confusing for some people because it kind of feels like it's associated with the Endangered Species Act. In fact, it is a multinational treaty uh, that that has with it companion legislation in the U.S. Uh, for enforcement that deals with those migrating birds that might cross those international borders and providing some protection for those birds um, as they move throughout the United States. The problem with the MBTA is over the years, it has started to work too well. And what we have are some species like black vultures that are now numbering in the millions. I think there are about 4.6 million black vultures in the United States, uh, the antithesis of an endangered species. And yet the controls over how you can manage those birds are so cumbersome for producers that we now have a situation where you have overwhelming numbers of birds that are predating calves um, and, and really inflicting a lot of havoc over an increasing area of the country. This is one of those issues that's kind of caught fire in the last couple of years because we're seeing such a massive impact of producers in those in those states where we see the problem. But it's not the only place where we see the Migratory Bird Treaty Act causing us issues. You have cormorant issues down on the Gulf Coast. Uh, we have raven issues throughout the West dealing with the sage-grouse problem. Um, wherever we see the MBTA, what we're seeing is um, uh, something that was sort of intended to provide an avenue to make sure these flyways are in place, but is it actually serving to really restrict our ability to, 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 to manage exploding populations. Um, we've been working on this issue for quite some time now. Uh, we've, we've asked the Hill to send letters in the past. This letter had, I believe, six members on it when, uh, when we engaged our uh, affiliate structure around the country to, to get involved in this issue. Uh, what we got in response was dozens of members weighing in on this from both the House and the Senate, both Republicans and Democrats. Um, like you said, this is a bicameral, uh, uh, bipartisan letter going to Fish and Wildlife saying, hey, my constituents in my backyard need relief here. We need the ability to manage these birds. So that's a, that's a really big uh, step forward for us. And, and any time in, in Washington circa 2019 that we can put forward some, something with R's and D's on it that agree on a, on a topic, um, that's, that's, that's progress. And that's something we want to lean into. Okay, so what does the letter ask for exactly. So what we're asking for is is additional flexibility for producers to get permits to manage those populations. Uh, if you can go, you can go now and you can get a permit to uh, to to take some of those some of those birds that are on your property, but you can't take enough of them. You know, if you can take thirty, but you have a thousand, um, it's not really going to help your problem. And and so we need to be able to take enough of them and manage that population so that we can actually provide some relief on the ground. Um, and that doesn't mean we wipe out the populations. That means that means management. I'm using that term very specifically because we do that in in every other wildlife. I, 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 you know, situation around the country, whether you're talking about uh, deer hunts, whether you're talking about any kind of wildlife management um, that involves take, that's that's responsible management of that resource. This is no different. You just have this international treaty that's that's just not quite working the way it was supposed to. And, and we need to make sure Fish and Wildlife Service understands the scope of the problem. 
Yeah, of course, last week on the podcast, we got around to discussing the introduction of a a bill on the fake meat issue called the Real Meat Act in the U.S. House of Representatives. One thing we didn't get a chance to discuss on the podcast is we also also saw the introduction uh, of a bill on the House side regarding hours of service. Uh, here to discuss that is Allison Rivera, our Executive Director of Government Affairs. Allison, can you tell us a little bit about this hours of service bill, what it would do, and uh, you know what some next steps might be on that issue? So as we continue to look for ways to find flexibility for not not only livestock haulers, but uh, the rest of agriculture as well, um, <clears throat> one of the ways that we've been talking about this issue for a while is that back-end 150 air mile exemption. Again, this exemption already occurs on the front end of hauls for anyone hauling ag commodities. Um, so it's a very simple language tweak to add that 150 on the back end while providing a great deal of flexibility for our livestock haulers. Um, this bill is H.R. 4919, the TREAD Act, uh, the Responsible and Efficient Agriculture Destination Act. We were very grateful to have Congresswoman Angie Craig, a Democrat from Minnesota, and Congressman Lloyd Smucker, a Republican from Pennsylvania, both Transportation and Infrastructure Committee members, um, introduced this bill with a handful of other R&D co-sponsors uh, on October 30th. All right. Sounds good. Sounds like a great bill. Um, what is the strategy moving forward on this? So this is obviously a very ag-specific bill, but this kind of language will have to move through TNI. Uh, the strategy moving forward... TNI being the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, right? Absolutely. On the House side, Transportation and, uh, and Infrastructure. The chairman is Congressman DeFazio of Oregon. Um he, uh, you know, trying to get this language to, to move forward is going to be a little bit of a heavy lift. A lot of members, especially a lot of Democrats on this committee, maybe don't like a lot of ag exemptions. And so the strategy moving forward uh, that has been um, been mentioned to us that the best way to get this done is to get this language into the base bill of a fast act reauthorization package, um, which has to pass before September of 2020. Uh, therefore, right now, our strategy is to get as many Democrats from the TNI committee, um, as well as some Republicans on board to show the chairman, who's also uh, a Democrat, that um, that this has support from a lot of his members. And so uh, the goal is to continue to get co-sponsors, and that's what we're asking from all of our members is to call their members up and talk about the need for this flexibility. All right, perfect. We look forward to working on that with you. All right, also joining us this week is Daryl Blakey. Daryl is our manager of legislative affairs and market regulatory policy. And, and Daryl, another thing we didn't get to talk about last week is that there is legislation moving on Capitol Hill now that would reauthorize the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Uh, tell us a little bit about that bill, um, you know, what we saw happen on the House side last week and uh, well, where we go from here. Sure. Uh, so what we saw was a unanimous reauthorization of the CFTC from the, U the the House Agriculture Committee on a bipartisan effort, right? So this was uh, the first bipartisan effort that we've seen coming out of the House in quite some time, uh, especially around CFTC reauthorization. At this point, NCBA is very excited with this product. We saw end-user protections. We saw advanced uh, efforts on coordinating with the commission and the Office of the Chief Economist on any rulemakings and its effect on end-users. So we're honestly really excited about this process. Hopefully it'll get out the House quickly here and uh, we can start moving in the Senate and seeing what uh, the Senate Act Committee can get done for us. 
All right. Now, in addition to that, in, in addition to the CFTC bill, um, there was legislation introduced recently uh, by Congressman Dusty Johnson from South Dakota. Tell us a little bit about that bill. Sure. So as most of our producers know, the markets have uh, changed and they're ever evolving. Um, Dusty Johnson and, and our team here in D.C. worked to craft some legislation that would help producers get educational um, efforts out there to the countryside in the form of education and uh, risk management tool knowledge for producers at the grass level. So we've engaged with their office and are engaging with other stakeholders such as economists and land grant institutions to figure out how we best can move forward through this process. The bill language has given the US, uh, USDA the flexibility in implementing this pretty easily. So we think we've got a lot of room here to move on this issue and we're looking forward to that process going through as well. All right, looking forward to it. Thanks, Daryl. Another thing that happened this week is the Animal Ag Alliance Board of Directors meeting happened in Washington, D.C. this week. Uh, I am honored to be a member of the Board of Directors for the Animal Ag Alliance. Um, if you're not familiar with them, uh, go and, and find them on online, Google them. Uh, they're doing a great job uh, educating people across uh, not just the beef industry, but all of animal agriculture about on issues like how to fight back against uh, you know, the false labeling of fake meat, um, these radical activist groups that are that are doing these invasions, basically, of of animal ag operations around the country, how to fight back against them, the the legal issues um, that that uh, the legal rights that producers have um, when these radical activists try to take over their operations and and set livestock free, for example. So, <clears throat> the Animal Ag Alliance is doing a lot of great work, um, and we had a great board meeting in D.C. this week. Um, check them out online if you if you're not familiar with them consider joining, consider, get, consider getting involved. Uh, they're a great resource for animal ag producers. And then, yeah, Ethan, one last thing. Um, just this morning, we had a, a breakfast meeting here with a candidate who is running for Congress. Um, a lot of people don't realize that we are, in addition to being a policy organization that lobbies on legislation and within the administration, we also have a political action committee. We give money to the candidates that we think are helpful to our industry, and we try to defeat people in campaigns who are not helpful to our industry. And sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll say something and, and people are a little bit shocked, like, why are you opposing this candidate or whatever? People sometimes don't realize that here in the D.C. office we're also a uh, very politically active. So can you talk a little bit about that, about the PAC and, and, and how that all plays out? Yeah. Ed, the, so the, the, the most important weapon we have in our arsenal here in D.C. is our producers around the country. I mean, the, the, the ability for them to connect with, with their members of Congress and tell their stories and, and hammer things home is critically important. The second most important weapon we have in our arsenal is the Political Action Committee. And, and the ability to use those resources to impact races around the country, to, to show our favor here or, or show our displeasure there, is, is, a, is a tool that is absolutely indispensable in, in that policy debate. Um, you know, every election cycle, NCBA is, uh, is Grand Central Station for candidates that are coming to Washington, D.C. to make their pitch, to talk about why they should come to, to Congress. And, and we work with our affiliates to ground truth those, those claims and, and see if those candidates are worthy of our support. I think we had our eighth or ninth meeting of the season uh, this morning here in the D.C. office. And, and obviously that's not counting the already elected members of Congress that we're meeting with on a constant basis in that, in that capacity. But it's a big part of what we do around here. I mean, people, I think, forget 
forget sometimes we are a bipartisan organization, but we are a political organization. And, and we are here in Washington, D.C. with the presence that we have to make our presence felt and make sure people know exactly what we expect of our elected members of Congress. And we, we are here to translate that message for our producers around the country. So when we have somebody here from, from Kansas or from Oklahoma or from Texas that's running for Congress, it's our job to make sure they understand what's expected of this, in, of this industry when they come to D.C. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed uh, a little bit different take on the podcast this week, and I hope it gives you a little bit of a better understanding of just the breadth of the variety of things that we are working on in Washington, D.C. Um, every week. I mean, it wasn't that much of an out-of-the-ordinary week for us, but um, we just wanted to make sure that you guys know um, especially the dues-paying members of NCBA, that these are this is how your dues are being spent in Washington, D.C., um, every day, every week, um, every month, and throughout the rest of the year. So um, thanks again for all of your support, and keep it, gum keep it coming, and hopefully we will be uh, having more progress to report in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. In the meantime, you've been listening to Beltway Beef. Until next week, eat beef. Check us out online at policy.ncba.org and follow us on Twitter at, at @beltwaybeef. Thanks for listening.